Jonathan Tobin is an American journalist and editor-in-chief of JNS.org, the Jewish News Syndicate, which provides news, opinions, and analysis on Israel and the Jewish world for nearly a hundred print newspapers and digital publications. He has a daily column on JNS and is also a contributing writer to the National Review, the New York Post, the Federalist, Haaretz, the Forward, and many other publications. He lectures widely across the U.S., including college campuses, and has appeared on CNN, the BBC, Fox News, and many other TV and radio shows. In an interview with the New York Times, he said, My job as editor is to talk about the things people are not willing to talk about. This was my first remote conversation. Unfortunately, there were some technical issues with the recording, but I tried to clean most of them up. Jonathan and I discussed the relationship between American Jews and the State of Israel, the Kotel Agreement, the rise of violent anti-Semitism in America, relations between the State of Israel and the American government, anti-Zionism, and much more. I'm Barack Holman, the author of Figured Out When You Get There, a memoir of stories about living life first and watching how everything falls into place, and a shtickle shalom, a student, his mentor, and their unconventional conversations. And this is Jewish People and Ideas, a podcast of conversations with Jewish thought leaders about contemporary Jewish topics. This episode of Jewish People and Ideas is sponsored by JerusalemEverything.com an online Jerusalem artist cooperative which sells high-quality original Jewish art in Judaica at low-cost prices, all made in Israel and shipped from Jerusalem. To learn more, go to JerusalemEverything.com. What's causing the rift between American Jews and the state of Israel? I think the great myth about Israel and diaspora Jewry, especially American Jewry, is that at its heart, it is a protest against Prime Minister Netanyahu, his policies, the whole idea uh, that Israel has not been giving enough in terms of the peace process, settlements, settlers, and that has become the accepted narrative, especially on the left here in the United States. And I think it's largely a misnomer. That is not to say that uh, American Jewry, which is overwhelmingly liberal, is not alienated from Netanyahu. He, um, he, uh, his ties with Republicans, his conservative nationalist policies tend to rub uh, American Jews the wrong way. He is identified with President Trump, who is anathema to most American Jews. And the fact that Trump is popular in Israel um, and that Obama was president, his predecessor, President Obama, was uh, disliked largely in Israel has created this idea that, you know, uh, that uh, Israel is a red state, American Jewry is a blue state. And there is truth in that. But the problem goes much, much deeper. At its heart, the issue is the essential nature of American Jewry, as well as demography. Now, in terms of the essential nature, I think this is something that Daniel Gordis wrote about um, in his, uh, his book about American Jewry and Israel. It's something I discussed in my review of uh, Danny Gore's book in Commentary Magazine um, in the November issue. And the truth is the idea that American Jewry and Israel were always as the UJA, UJA slogan, the, you know, the Federation uh, Philanthropy slogan was, we are one. That was always a misnomer. It was always more uh, aspirational than descriptive. The, if you look at the broad stroke 
uh, of, of American uh, and, and Israeli history, the period during which uh, American Jewry was most enthusiastic about Israel, in which the idea of we are one really seemed to be a, uh, a consensus issue, was relatively short. It stretched maybe from 1948 to 1982, maybe just from 1967 to 1982. American Jewry was among the most resistant to, to Zionism, starting from its beginnings as a political movement in uh, from 18, at the time of the, the Basel Congress in the late 1890s, American Jewry reacted very badly to it because as far as most American Jews, especially those who were settled at that time rather than the ones coming in from Eastern Europe, they had already found Zion in the United States. They were not looking to uh, find a new home elsewhere. They had found paradise in the world. And they had reason to think so. They were accepted more than anywhere else. Uh, they had more freedom. They had more prosperity. And indeed, in 1885, the reform movement of Judaism specifically eschewed anything that in their in their Pittsburgh platform, eschewed anything that sounded like Zionism even before there was political Zionism. And those attitudes continued for decades. Even um, those American Jews who embraced Zionism as did uh, Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis, who was at one point the president of the Zionist Organization of America, uh, those, those American Jews who called themselves Zionists were very different and had very different ideas than Zionists um, elsewhere in that they had no personal intention of making Aliyah. They were the, uh, <laughs> they, they exemplified the old joke that a Zionist is a, is a Jew who asks for money from a second Jew to send a third Jew to the land of Israel. They considered Zionism a cause to help Jews in less happy countries than the United States. Um, they, Brandeis spoke of Zionism as, as um, inseparable from Americanism. It, it was a very different kind of thing. And yet at the same time, the anti-Zionists, and there were overtly anti-Zionism, was a very mainstream movement in American Jewry prior to 1948. They saw this as, um, you know, the analogy with some of the British opponents of uh, the Balfour Declaration uh, during the debate in the British cabinet when the, when the Jewish member was opposed to the Balfour Declaration because he felt, at Edwin Montague, because he felt it would compromise the rights of British Jewry to remain in Britain. Many American Jews felt the same way. And indeed, there was a, uh, the, the reform movement sort of split in the 1930s when two of its greatest leaders, uh, Abihilel Silver and Stephen Wise, um, embraced Zionism and indeed became the greatest leaders of American Zionism in that period up to 1948, with other reformed Jews um, uh, forming the American Council for Judaism, which was explicitly anti-Zionist. So, the, these attitudes lingered over even after 1948, when such uh, when such beliefs seemed you know, completely outdated. And, and at that core, uh, there's also this disconnect. Israel is a particularist nation. It is, at its essence, parochial. It's about saving one people uh, that have been uh, homeless and um, persecuted for 20 centuries. America is a is a country for everyone. It is not explicitly an ethnic, you know, blood and soil nation. It is about, it has, it's based in universalist values. And those universalist values resonate greatly with, with American Jews. And uh, indeed, 
Um, you know, the, the writer Cynthia Ozick's famous quip that uh, universalism is the parochialism of the Jews reflects a basic mindset of American Jews that sees, you know, the, the balance between the universalist and the particular, which is inherent in Judaism. For American Jews, it's always been tilted more heavily towards the universalist. So Israel is always going to be a hard sell. People. And now when we speak of young American Jews being alienated from Israel, it's not just that they don't like Netanyahu or that they find you know, the, the settlements issue so, uh, so alienating. It's that any kind of identity that is particular in that way is you know, the, the whole idea of you know, marry another Jew, don't marry just anyone, seems to the mindset of a, of a Jew raised on the idea that the essence of Judaism is tikkun olam, to repair the world, which is a liberal mantra, you know, embraced by everybody from Barack Obama to, to you know, every reform rabbi. That seems racist to, you know, the, this idea of a nationalist state, even the most mild democratic form of nationalism is um, very, um, very repugnant to many American Jews. And so, so there's that ideological component, and the the demographic problem is something that we we usually speak about in a different context, and that is the implosion of um, non-orthodox Jewry in the United States, uh, and to a certain extent in North America, you know, can include Canada as well. We are now the intermarriage rate for non-orthodox Jews in the United States. In 2013, the Pew um, Survey of Jewish Americans, which is the most a scientific and most reliable study yet we've had on American Jewry showed that intermarriage rates for the non-Orthodox were in the high 70s. I don't, you know, we're now six years later. I don't think there's any reason to believe that it isn't uh, considerably higher, maybe over 80% by now. So you have a situation, and that doesn't mean that everybody who intermarries uh, doesn't raise their children as Jews. A significantly large percentage of, of them do. But Jewish identity has been profoundly changed by this. And um, the sense of Jewish peoplehood, the, the idea that link every Jewish community to one another throughout the world, has been considerably watered down by this new tribe of intermarried Jews in this country and um, who don't regard the, the assumptions about uh, the formation of Israel and, and the Holocaust that guided American Jewry during that brief window that I spoke about earlier, during which Israel was very much important to American Jewry, really a consensus issue, that's kind of faded away. And indeed, it doesn't have much relevance to people who are growing up in an era, not merely because they have non-Jewish relatives, but because they are part of a way of thinking about the world and about Jewish identity that is completely different from the most liberal form of, of, of Israeli democracy, of, of, uh, of Israeli Zionism. So there's, there's a basic problem there that isn't addressed by the simple political narrative of liberal Zionism in which uh, American Jews must rescue Israel, to, must save it from itself, from losing its identity because of um, the, the occupation of uh, the West Bank in Jerusalem or, or Gaza. We can argue those issues out, and I think you know that liberal Zionist narrative is itself profoundly flawed, but it is irrelevant to most of the American Jews who really have no strong feelings about Israel. Now, it isn't to say that they hate Israel. It isn't to say that they might not you know, have some ties in some way, but they're nowhere near as strong as they used to be. 
And that is a function of demography, not politics. Well, it's quite a depressing picture that you've painted, even though I know that's the reality. You know, I grew up in the States and I grew up in the 70s and 80s in South Florida with a big Jewish population. And in a Zionist JCC where we said the national anthem and then sang Hatikva. And I grew up, even though I grew up reform, I grew up very connected to the state of Israel. It was always something important, even though I'd never been there and, it, and I didn't really know what was happening over there. But in my mind, it was something important. And the picture you're describing is that that, is, that paradigm is completely gone. Let, let me jump in. To say that it is completely gone would be an exaggeration. Okay. Um, there are still Zionist Jews in the United States. There are still strong supporters of, uh, of Israel in the United States. And they are not completely con- concentrated in the, in the Orthodox community, which remains a, 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 you know, a small minority. It's, it's growing demographically, but it will take many decades before sort of triumphalist predictions of Orthodox Jews that they will become the majority of American Jewry will be realized. There is still affection for Israel in the United States among American Jews. There are, you know, Israel is still part of Reform and Conservative Judaism. But it is, uh, the problem for, for American Judaism is that um, it's, it, it's like two ships passing in the night. Those who have remained within the Jewish community are actually getting a lot more Jewish. Every one of the denominations, they're sort of, they've taken a, a step to the right liturgically. Mm-hmm. They, there is more Hebrew, you know, even in reform services, there is more kosher food. There isn't a Jewish philanthropic organization of the United States practically, you know, they all have kosher dinners now when, when they have their, their, their big shindigs. Those inside the Jewish community are more connected to Jewish values and to normative sort of sense of Jewish peoplehood. But that is actually in the minority. So you have a very different Jewish community in that sense. You know, the bulk of American Jew of those who identify as Jewish, when the demographers say, what are you? It's not clear. I mean, you know, Pew called them Jews of no religion to being the fastest growing segment of American Jewry. But it's not clear within a couple of generations what that will mean for many of the people who call themselves Jewish, whether it's you know, it will be sort of the way some Americans identify with their Native American heritage to say that they're, say, <laughs> to pick a number out of a hat, 164th Cherokee. Mm-hmm. Identifies the, why do I use that? Um, to which, which doesn't mean they don't care about their, you know, their, you know, Cherokee heritage to the extent that they have any. Um, it connects them to something sad, to something exotic, to something heroic. Um, that will, I think, be largely true of many, Amer- of many of those who call themselves Jewish. Uh, you know, they'll be connected to the Holocaust, connected to the, the broad strokes of, of Jewish history, the Bible. But it will not really affect how they live on a day-to-day basis, um, you know, in the way that someone who is observant lives, or even the way that an ordinary Israeli lives by the Jewish calendar. What we have to acknowledge about American Jewry and Israel is that these are really two different tribes. Um, they are branches of the same family, but they are, even those who really care about Israel uh, in this country, they're very different from Israeli Jews. Mm-hmm. Outlooks, they have different, different culture. And the problem with the American Jewry is not just the disconnect. It's that the refusal to acknowledge the disconnect. 
you know, Israelis, when they're not negating the diaspora, which is sort of part of normative Zionist ideology, they really don't understand much about American Jewry. Even when they come here to live, you know, it takes a fair amount of time for Israeli Jews who come to live in the United States to realize that you can't just maintain your your Jewish identity by finding people to speak Hebrew with. If you're going to live in the diaspora, you kind of have to be a Jew. You have to be because nothing else is transmissible. Nothing else is really meaningful. It's no more meaningful that people than people who thought they could hold on to Jewish identity by speaking Yiddish to each other or, or extolling Yiddish culture, which is you know not a bad thing. You know, it's, you know, preserving Yiddish culture is fine, but it's not a transmissible value in terms of maintaining a Jewish people or let alone maintaining ties to Jews elsewhere. Over here, the Kotel Agreement was a big deal, at least in the newspapers, politically, it was a big deal. I don't think most Israelis really care about the Kotel. Most of them don't even come to the Kotel. But it seemed like from our point of view here in Israel, American Jewry exploded when this deal was changed or lessened. What are your views about the Kotel Agreement and American Jewry, the state of Israel? Well, I guess the disclaimer, I should start out by saying that I am a lifelong conservative Jew, uh, not, not really conservative politically. Okay. So the conservative movement supported it as well. Although I am conservative politically as well, as anybody who reads my work knows. But I, I have been a member of conservative synagogues my whole life, I'm an active member of conservative synagogues. The reason why American Jewry exploded is in part because they not unfairly thought that this was something, was you know sort of a, a slight to them, those who identify with the non-Orthodox denominations, but also because they don't really understand Israeli. We, we spoke a moment ago about you know, Israeli and American Jews not understanding each other because they don't understand the origins of it. Uh, in Israel, um, to state the obvious, there is no separation between religion and state. And it is a country, and as such, it is a country where rabbis you know, get paid by the state in, in, you know, to no small extent. And in, in any country where rabbis are paid by the state, the question of who is a rabbi which is the main question, which is the question about religious pluralism in Israel, not who is a Jew, but who is a rabbi. Under those circumstances, the question of who is a rabbi is an intensely political question, as, as any, any question of uh, dispersing of government funds would be. And that is something that American Jews really can't wrap their brains around, because the idea of clergy being paid by the state is completely antithetical to our political um, and our experiences. You know. <laughs> Uh, rabbis are paid by their congregants here, by the people who belong to the to to the to the individual synagogue. Every you know, every synagogue is in business for itself, which is something our our, our Catholic friends uh, sometimes don't understand either. The idea that was conveyed through the altering of of the the Kotel agreement was that you know, sort of uh, to to paraphrase the famous New York Daily News headline about uh, Gerald Ford in New York City, it was sort of. Israel to American Jewry dropped dead. That's how American Jews perceived it. We don't consider you Jewish. We don't consider your religious institutions to be valid. And that's that's a slap in the face. That's a real issue. I would say it's an exaggeration to to um, believe that this is a core problem. This is why Israel, you know, American Jews don't care about Israel. As I said before, there are much broader, deeper issues behind that. But it's it's still something that grates on American Jewry, even those who, who love Israel within the Reform and Conservative movement, many do. So, but the problem is in, in Israel, um, 
the reforming conservative movements are still quite small, very, very small, and have more or less zero political influence, as opposed to explicitly orthodox parties, which have obviously a great deal of influence and seats in the Knesset. And any prime minister of Israel, uh, whether it's Netanyahu or a putative uh, Benny Gantz um, government-led government, uh, if that ever ha- if that happens, is always going to listen to the parties that have the votes, not to 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 movements that have no votes. And that's a that's a, a truth that American Jewry not only doesn't understand, it doesn't know. So that's that's the big problem. That's a big problem there. They don't understand why. And the truth is, uh, most. Uh, Israelis, as you say, don't care about the Kotel, and they don't. They could care even less about religious pluralism, about rights for reform and conservative rabbis. Which isn't to say that you know I, I, that there is a sort of a strong majority against giving them rights. They're just complete indifference to the issue because reform and conservative Ju- Judaism are largely viewed as foreign diaspora um, movements by Israelis, for most Israelis, even though, whether they consider themselves a traditional or, or Hiloni, you know, completely non-religious, the, the synagogue that they don't go to is Orthodox. So that, that's an alien, you know, that, that's a problem. That said, to the extent, and, you know, to speak up for the position of, of conservative and reform Judaism, to the extent that Israel wants and believes and rightly believes itself, to be um, not merely a separate political entity, uh, but um, the home of all of Jews, that you know, the land of Israel belongs to all of the Jewish people, that the holy sites belong to all of the Jewish people. Accommodations for you know, the, the other large uh, Jewish community in the world, namely American Jewry, 90% of whom do not identify as Orthodox through a compromise that would allow the Kotel to be not merely an Orthodox synagogue, as it is in the main plaza, but the the alternative, you know, the the, uh, the egalitarian to create an egalitarian area, as uh, Natan Sharansky's plan called for, and for it to have better access than it has now, which you know it, it, it's not easily found, it's not easily gotten to, and um, you know there are there are Orthodox Jews, that, you know, kind of want to undermine it. And so that, that's a point of contention, and it's a point of legitimate contention for Israeli governments, you know, no matter where you stand, what you think about the non-Orthodox nations, accommodating them in, you know, in, uh, you know, Judaism's uh, sacred spaces uh, makes sense. It makes sense Zionistically, it makes sense politically, and it's, quite frankly, from my point of view, it's the right thing to do. If uh, Israel's go- future governments can find a way to do better on that and to expand the egalitarian uh, prayer space, um, you know, the sun deck, as some people call it, at the Kotel and, and Rob by Robinson's Arch, that would, not going to solve problems between Israel and American Jewry, which, as I said, go far deeper, but it would be helpful. It would be a good thing, and I think it would be the right. Okay, I'm going to leave the Kotel alone. Because there's a lot to say about it. There is. We could go on for a while. but Everything you bring up, I feel like I could just go on for an hour. But there's more things I want to cover here. Speaking as an Israeli, once I had a Shabbos guest, he said to me, are you Israeli or American? Because obviously, I grew up in America. I moved to Israel when I was 22. And now I'm 48. So I've been here my whole adult life. I'm also married to an Israeli. And all of our kids are Israeli. So I live in like a very Israeli home. So once a Shabbos guest said to me, so you're American or Israeli? I said, I'm Israeli. He said, I don't believe you. 
So he tried to figure out a test. His test was, let's say you're in a foreign country and there's an emergency. Do you go to the American embassy or the Israeli embassy? So my wife and I looked at each other and we said, we go to the Israeli embassy, of course. He said, okay, you're Israeli. So that's how, that's my like litmus test for my Israeliness. So as an Israeli, I sit over here and I, and I look at American Jewry. That's a lot of faith in the Israeli foreign ministry. And I think that really does. Oh, I do. I actually do. I actually do have that level of faith. It's very funny. I, it, it, there was a whole transition in my mentality and my faith in Israelis after all the years of being here. Like when I go to the American embassy here, it used to be the consulate, now it's the embassy in Jerusalem. I really feel like a foreigner. I go to Misada Pnim, to the Ministry of the Interior, and I feel like I'm home. I sit over here and I, and I watch American Jewry, and there were two big things that, that bothered me. One was the lack of support for the move of the embassy, which really had nothing to do with Trump. I think it was Bill Clinton, in the time of Bill Clinton, that the law was passed by Congress, that the embassy would be moved. It was delayed. You'll correct me if I'm wrong. It was delayed. And here it was finally moved by Trump, and American Jewry opposed it, whereas we here in Israel saw it as absolutely the right thing to do. And the second thing is the Iran deal. I felt like American Jewry abandoned us Israelis. I mean, Iran is out to wipe us off the planet. And I would have expected American Jews to be protesting like crazy against this deal. So the deal was from Obama. The embassy was from Trump. What do you have to say about it? Had it been reversed, that's the, the, what you're getting at here. Uh, you know, what you say is not wrong. You know, uh, Iran is an existential threat to Israel just as much now, in fact, maybe even more so now um, than it was several years ago because it's been enriched and empowered by the, by, by the nuclear deal. And the embassy was, quite frankly, moving the embassy was a consensus issue within American Jewry, at least it used to be. What you need to understand about, you know, to explain why American Jewry largely actually supported the Iran deal more than most Americans and why it, um, you know, was not only not in, most American Jews were not only not enthusiastic about the embassy move and the recognition of Jerusalem, finally the recognition of Jerusalem as Israel's capital. And it just boils down to partisanship. And that is, you know, Israel is a country where, you know, politics is a great divider, where partisanship is real. But, and we used to think that American partisanship wasn't so strong. Republicans and Democrats um, a generation or two ago weren't really fundamentally different um, in many ways, but they are now. We live in the United States in a bifurcated country, not merely where people identify with different political leaders and policies, but they read, listen, and watch different media. They have completely different views, completely different sets of facts about issues. And this blue state, red state divide, it's not a cliche. It's a reality. Mm -hmm. And uh, Barack Obama, um, in terms of getting around the past, he did it very cleverly in that he really turned it into a partisan litmus test. If you were a loyal Democrat, you couldn't oppose him. And American Jews are loyal Democrats. They're among the most you know, loyal to the Democrats of any Democrat, I mean, perhaps even more loyal than even African-Americans. And as such, they were not going to oppose Barack Obama. Now, many of them, because of whether because they were liberal Zionists and you know, distrusted Netanyahu, saw him as you know, close to the Republicans. And indeed, Netanyahu kind of walked into a trap when he was invited by the Republicans to, 
to relitigate the, the politics of 2015, when he was invited by the Republican-controlled House to address Congress on the Iran deal, you know, every word he said in that speech was true and eloquent, but it also was, you know, the plain fact is, which even many of his supporters still refuse to acknowledge, it was deeply counterproductive because it enabled Obama to paint the issue as partisan, that it was an insult. And indeed, there was something a little weird about a foreign leader addressing, con- addressing Congress on an issue that Congress was going to vote on to uh, advise them to not to, to oppose the, the views of the American president. And, it, and it, it played into Obama's hands, and that became a partisan issue. If you were a Democrat, you stuck with your, with your party. Indeed, and the same is true with the embassy move, which is something that you know, liberal Jews had called for you know, if they cared about Israel for 20 years. Yes, the law was passed uh, by a Republican, sponsored by uh, then-Senator Bob Dole, who was in, in the process of running for president, looking to uh, shore up some pro-Israel support in 1995. Clinton signed it, but then never enforced it, and every president until Trump used the waiver that was the poison pill put into the bill to allow them to to uh, delay it, or and all intents and purposes never to implement it. And American Jews weren't for it because it was something Trump was doing. As I said, you know, we're a bifurcated country, Republicans and Democrats, red state, blue state. In the last three years, that has been exacerbated. It is much deeper. And it's not just Republicans and Democrats. It's Trump, you know, it's pro-Trump, contra, against Trump. Trump is the great dividing issue of American politics today, how you feel about him. And anything that Trump was going to do, the majority of Democrats were going to brand as somehow illegitimate or wrong, and were going to buy into any argument put together to oppose it. It's, it's just, it's as simple as that. It's not that Jews and, you know, American Jews, you know, want a Palestinian flag to fly, fly over, over Jerusalem or that they didn't recognize Jerusalem. It's that Trump did it. Got it. Ivanka Trump unveiling the, you know, the, uh, the stone that, uh, you know, when uh, the change uh, happened. And anything the Trumps do is in the eyes, liberal American Jewry, the, the 70% that you know, not only vote Democrat, vote Democratic, uh, support liberal causes, they're just not going to buy, they're, they're not going to support anything that he does. And that's just, it's just a fact. And Israelis who like Trump for good reason, because he's the most pro-Israel president we've ever had. Right. It's inarguable. So they have good reason to like him. They had good reason to be suspicious and to dislike Barack Obama, who is, according to the polls, the most disliked American president as far as Israelis were concerned, because of his policy seeking daylight between the United States and Israel, because his appeasement of Iran, uh, you know, he just wasn't that in love. I mean, even if you don't think he was a Manchurian, you know, whatever conspiracy theory you want, still people talk about him as a Manchurian candidate or hating Israel, wanting Israel to be destroyed. I don't think that was true. He's just, he was just a liberal who bought into liberal notions and uh, about and, and myths about the Islamic world. But you know, that the fact is, American Jews loved him. Right. He, he was a Democrat. And indeed, he made a, the majority of Americans feel good about themselves because he was the first African-American president. And Israeli dislike of him just not only didn't, didn't resonate, it, it, it was counterintuitive for American Jews, just as they view Israeli support for Trump to be counterintuitive. Got it. So we're just basically coming back to where we started about That's the right. differences. And it makes me think that really... 
when we say American Jews, that really defines this identity more so than a Jewish American. Yeah, well, you you can you can play all the grammar games you want about what is the defining term. It's what you've been describing. But the fact is, American Jews are here in America. Yeah, and it makes sense. It makes they're, total they're sense. Here. They they think about the world with American eyes, and even if you you know you you spoke of your own experiences, you know, after twenty odd years, you know, you're now you 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 you, you just use your Israeli passport and go to an Israeli embassy. Well, you know, the truth is, it's these are two different cultures. Even if you're the most pro-Israel Jew here, you go to Israel and you're in a foreign country. Right, with a foreign language. Tell yourself that you're at home, and in a sense, you know, if you're a Zionist, you know, if you have a you know a Jewish heart, it's a foreign country with people who speak a different language than your normal everyday to day language. They have a different culture. They behave differently, as you can see in any anytime people have to line up anywhere. You know, the right. the, the customs are different in some ways, much warmer and more. You know, the sense of communal sense of belonging is, and communal purpose is much greater. And on the other hand, the manners are, are much worse So, from an American point of view. So, of course, they're separate. They're different. doesn't mean right. that the things that can unite American Jewry and Israel aren't still very powerful and, and very important and need to be nurtured to the extent that they can be. But any discussion of this issue, which begins with the notion that somehow we're, we're one and, you know, American Jews think, well, if only Israelis would behave politically the way we want them to, or maybe play more baseball rather than, or, and Israeli Jews who somehow think, well, if Isra American Jews need to wake up and be more like us, these are non-starters. These are mm -hmm. ways to look at a, a problem um, whereby two people who are related and have in some ways a common destiny um, and, and still very strong ties, they're not the same thing. Do you think we have a common destiny? I think, you know, these are sort of eschatological, these are deeply existential eschatological uh, questions, you know, but I think um, for anyone who has a sense of Jewish peoplehood, and I speak, uh, I guess, in the sense for, for the many Amer American Jews who still have a strong sense of identif identification with Jews everywhere, feel that every Jew is responsible one for another. Of course, in some ways, we always will have a common destiny. That doesn't believe. That doesn't mean I don't believe in American exceptionalism. That this, that the United States is different from the rest of the world. It is. It's not immune from the problems of the rest of the world. Or immune from anti-Semitism. This is a very different place than Europe, even at its worst. Mm -hmm. It's a freer country. It is a country where Jews are more at home, not just in, in a, a sort of general sense, but in a real sense. You know, we have an intermarriage problem in this country, to the extent that some of us still refer to it as a problem rather than just as a reality to be embraced. That's a good point. Um, it is because the rest of the population likes us, wants to marry us. It's not that just the Jews woke up and, yes, we're going to marry non-Jews. The non-Jewish population in this country, our Christian neighbors, others, um, they view us as fellow citizens and as having more in common with them than, than, than differences. American Jews are being loved to death to a certain extent as a right. separate community. Um, uh, support for Zionism in this country. We've spoken about American Jewish disconnect from Israel. Support for Israel and Zionism is baked deep into the political DNA of America. It goes back, you know, not just to Harry Truman or Woodrow Wilson, but to John Adams. He was the first American president who endorsed the idea of the Jewish state. And, you know, it's, yes, it's rooted, uh, you know, in evangelical thought and people who believe the Bible, 
Americans are a deeply religious country, maybe not as religious as they used to be, and they take these sorts of ideas seriously. America, Israel is very popular in the United States. The extent that it has problems, it is with Jews, not with non-Jews. Um, certainly, there are pockets of of you know certainly minority populations for right variety of reasons. Um, intersectionality, intersectional politics, you know, and it's a growing problem. But for most, for the majority of Americans, Israel is very, very strongly liked. Trump's policies towards Israel are broadly popular. You know, there, there's that difference. So do I, you know, to get back to what you said, do we have a common destiny? To the extent that Jews embrace their Jewish identity and have a sense of Jewish people, but they will always have a common destiny with each other, no matter where they are, whether they are 500 years from now, God willing, the state of Israel uh, is, is is still standing and still strong, and American, the American Republic is still standing and still strong. American Jewry and Israeli Jewry will still be very, very different, probably more different than they are now. But to the extent that Jews are still Jews with a Jewish heart and a sense of Jewish peoplehood, they will still be connected. And in that sense, they will have a common destiny. You wrote an article, The True Face of American Antisemitism is Primarily Anti-Orthodox. That article made a real impression on me. Can you please elaborate? There's a tremendous irony in that American Jews are focused, and not unreasonably, on um, what happened in at the Tree of Life congregation in Pittsburgh and at Chabad uh, in Poway, California. You know, in that with white nationalists um, attacking Jewish institutions, and those weren't the first such attacks, but certainly what happened in Pittsburgh is you know the worst in in our history. But what is going on in Brooklyn? where there is ongoing violence against, you know, ultra-Orthodox Jews, Haredi Jews, as we'd say in Israel, Hasidic Jews, Jews who aren't merely embracing Jewish identity, but basically wear a sign around their, you know, their necks by, by their, their, by their dress uh, that are clearly Jewish and being subjected to really almost daily violence um, from, um, elements of the African-American community in uh, Crown Heights and, and other areas um, in Brooklyn. This is an ongoing problem. It's not one off where, you know, some crazed lunatic part of a white supremacist sect, which is, you know, which constitutes a very, very tiny minority. This is something that is ongoing. This is, you know, the, the hate crime statistics in New York City show that the primary victims of hate crimes are Jews and Orthodox Jews, um, and that those numbers are going up. And yet, few even within the Jewish community have even noticed this problem. Few are protesting it. Few care about it. And, you know, that, that, that's, that's, that's a tremendous problem. And, you know, it, it, it is that when we focus on what is anti-Semitism, and certainly there is a rising tide of anti-Semitism around the world, there is growing anti-Semitism in the United States, uh, partly from uh, these white supremacists, violent white supremacists, partly from uh, leftist anti-Zionists who are legitimizing anti-Semitism through their hatred of Israel, through their attempts to delegitimize and to silence and shun pro-Israel Jews. And yet the daily violence you know, the, the ongoing problem is something much more elemental. It's about an Orthodox community which is in battle. And yet it is one about which uh, most American Jews uh, are not even 
aware and certainly don't express much uh, much uh, much interest and it's it's shocking and it's something that uh, the anti-defamation league which is you know supposed to be the the monitor and the defender of american jews against anti-semitism has only been very late and uh, not strong enough in in dealing with that's true for a number of reasons, partly because of their political orientation. They're much more focused on being part of the antistance. And also, as they view um, their brief as be as much to foster good relations with the African-American community, which is a good thing, which is you know not an unworthy cause, they've been slow to, to call this out. And um, that's something that needs to be done if we're going to address, um, if we're going to, if we're, if we're Say we're going to care about anti-Semitism, and it doesn't work if we're going to ignore the most prevalent form of anti-Semitism we have in this country, and that is violence against Orthodox Jews. You wrote an article how anti-Zionists legitimize anti-Semitism. Is that related to this? It, it is, but not directly. The, that particular piece, which stemmed from an address that I gave at the Department of Justice at its summit against anti-Semitism, which was a pretty historic moment to see the Department of Justice convening a, a summit and, you know, in its great hall with people of scholars, writers, talking about what is causing anti-Semitism, what is, what is at its heart, and what we need to do about it. The truth is one of the interesting statistics, you know, those of us who are journalists, you know, we're always looking at polls, we're always looking at surveys, and in pondering anti-Semitism in this country, the truth is younger Jews are much more likely to encounter it than older Jews. Now, that seems, you know, that seems odd, right? Older Jews, they must remember more anti-Semitism in the past, but uh, they certainly aren't encountering it now. Uh, those who encounter anti-Semitism now, outside of, you know, those Orthodox Jews who are being you know, attacked in, you know, in, in some communities and specifically in Brooklyn, they're encountering it in college, um, where groups like the Students for Justice in Palestine, a pro-BDS, profoundly and deeply anti-Semitic, not only in their ideology, but in uh, their discourse and their willingness to target Jews in various ways. That has created, you know, a, a dynamic on the left. Uh, we, we mentioned a little while ago uh, about intersectional ideology, where um, the struggle uh, for civil rights in this country is being identified with the Palestinian war against Israel's existence, which is, uh, you know, a myth. It's a deeply false narrative, but it has become increasingly mainstream in certain parts of uh, not only in the African-American community, but on the, uh, on the left. And it is legitimizing anti-Semitism. Anti and we see two prominent members of Congress, two prominent pro-BDS members, namely uh, Representative Ilhan Omar of Minnesota and uh, Rashid Tlaib of, Mich of Michigan, were people who have engaged in anti-Semitic invective and yet live to tell the tale. They haven't been shunned by their party. They're embraced by their party. Um, they're embraced, uh, quite frankly, by the you know, a Jewish candidate for president, Senator Bernie Sanders. And as much as uh, both those two people and you know some of their supporters and apologists and rationalizers uh, see this as something separate that they're just critiquing Israel, um, it's not true. They're 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 using anti-Semitic tropes and they are legitimizing anti-Semitism because anti-Zionism is itself anti-Semitism. That's something. Um, that some Jews even have trouble understanding, but it's it's a plain fact. If you're willing to deny to the Jews that which you would not deny or even think of denying to other people, namely uh, the right to live in peace in their homeland, the right to sovereignty, the right to self-defense. Yes, not every people in the world, the Kurds and the Basques don't have a state, but there's no international movement seeking to throw the Kurds and the Basques. 
not out of where the places where they live. Mm-hmm. When you legitimize that movement, when you tr- you know when you wrongly consider it a human rights cause rather than a hate crime, a, a cause based in hate, you are essentially legitimizing anti-Semitism. We've seen this illustrated very obviously in Britain, where the Labour Party and it's which has been taken over by its far left, Corbyn who is an extreme uh, opponent of Israel and his cadre of supporters share that. And that has led to expressions of, you know, routine expressions of anti-Semitism. That's the thing about a BDS movement, whether it's in the Labor Party or whether it's uh, on, on American campuses. You don't have to listen to sort of uh, pro-Israel voices like me to understand that it's rooted in anti-Semitism. You just have to watch what they do. Wherever their banners are raised, acts of anti-Semitic intimidation and sometimes violence always follow. Does Israel need more allies than just America? Israel can use as many allies as it can get, but there is no substitute for the alliance with the United States. It's, you know, looking to China, you know, looking to Russia, um, Israel should have uh, good try good relations with everyone, try to trade with them, um, understand that certainly Russia is a now, you know, a a power in the Middle East, thanks to Obama and to some extent Trump's decisions to basically let them have their way in Syria. But the American alliance is flexible because it's rooted in more than just real politique. It's rooted in this broad support for Israel, the United States, common values. It's not just a cliche. It's important. And, is, and the United let's remember something else. The United States is still the only super, real superpower in the world, no matter who is its president, no matter what its policies, its its economy is 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 you know not to be compared with anyone else. There is no substitute for the American alliance. That doesn't mean that Israel shouldn't try to have friends. One of the most underreported stories of the last few years has been Netanyahu's success in broadening um, Israel's diplomatic outreach. Israel's no longer isolated the way it was. Uh, both in the third world and, you know, other Arab countries, although Barack Obama's Iran policies get some credit there. But these are all important. But Israelis who think that America is just not important to them anymore need to think again. Um, there's no substitute for an American audience. This is a writer's question. For anyone who's listening to the podcast and hasn't read your articles, you'll see that you write at least five days a week. You write in multiple publications. And as a writer, I'm trying to understand, how do you do that? Well, I do write a daily column, uh, a weekday, Monday through Friday column for JNS.org. Please log on, please uh, read it, please support it with your donations. I also write uh, for other publications, I write regularly for National Review, which is the still the leading conservative magazine in the United States. I write for The Federalist. I write a, you know, two or three times a month for a column for The New York Post. Um, I even write for Haaretz's English edition. Um, once or twice a month. That's impressive. Um, uh, how do I do it? Uh, my standard answer to that question is um, that's what they're paying me to do. So I guess I better keep doing it. Uh, I, I, unlike most writers, I like writing. Um, it's my living. It's my craft. More importantly, I believe in what I'm doing. I'm very blessed to have a job um, where I get to do what I believe in. Uh, hopefully, what I'm fairly good at, and um, uh, I intend to keep doing that as as much and as often as I can. So. <laughs> writing and as far as you know sometimes you know just sort of a writer's question you run out of ideas um, when you write opinion for um for you know in journalism the, the basic advice all of the news stuff is always happening things are you know there are always issues popping up there are always controversies i don't run out of ideas because uh, you know we never run out of 
of news and you know the principles and the, and the ideas that I support are relevant to you know a lot of the stuff that happens so it's really not that much of a problem I run out of energy at times I'll, you know I'll, you know, ah. I, you know but um never entirely so um, I'm still at it I'm still in the fight and uh, continue and have no plans of uh, stopping well you should know that the reason that I reached out to you is because of all those amazing articles that you're writing so you're doing well, a great you. job. I appreciate it. Okay, last question. Imagine there was a massive billboard that millions of Jews would walk past, stand there for a few seconds, and read the message. What message would you put on your billboard? An excellent question. I, I think the message that I would like to convey to other Jews is that, uh, you know, whether you're Zionist, you consider yourself a non-Zionist, religious or non-religious, our story our survival, this epic narrative that we have been embarked upon for the last 3,500 years, uh, where however we're dating, however far back we're dating it, this is one that has value to all of us. Jewish people, to be part of the Jewish people is to be part of something bigger than yourself. It's to be part of a story that is immortal. And I guess my billboard message would be to say, you know, Am Yisrael Chai, the Jewish people live but they live because of you. And it is your choice. You know, you have a choice as to whether to be part of this story. You have a lot more, a lot more to lose by ignoring it. I guess I have, a, I have to work out the, the language here. But basically, my one liner, my headline is embrace your Jewish identity. Embrace what it means to be part of the Jewish people. We are all one responsible one for another, but we all do share common history. And it is something that has, you know, in terms of a faith, in terms of a land, in terms of a civilization. If you are ignoring it, you are the loser. Thank you very much, Jonathan. Thank you for having me on. It's been a pleasure. That was Jonathan Tobin, the editor-in-chief of JNS.org, the Jewish News Syndicate, Please visit JNS.org to learn more about him, his columns, and the other writers on the website. And thank you, as always, for listening to this show. If you'd like to become a supporter of Jewish People and Ideas, you can go to my website, jewishpeopleideas.com, and you'll see a link there to become a supporter. Please make sure to also listen to my other podcast, The Hasidic Story Project, where every week I release a new Hasidic story the audience keeps growing and more and more people are participating. I want to thank you again for listening. Please make sure to leave us five stars and a positive review wherever you listen to this podcast and share it with any friends that you think would be relevant. I look forward to being with you on the next episode with many more fascinating guests to come. Thank you very much. <laughs>